Thank you all so much for coming. Uh, so we're continuing to learn about the stories of Rabbi Nachman. If you missed the, the, the first uh, shir, um, so basically it could be summed up in the sense that uh, Rabbi Nachman told stories. And uh, Rabbi Nachman was the first and maybe uh, the, the only tzaddik to not just... Um, to not just tell stories about Sadiqim, but was a tzaddik that told stories about others. Um, and it's a revolutionary way, and we're going to talk a little bit tonight about how Rabbi Nachman came to tell the stories, but I want to start off with a, um, with a story, which is, uh, which is how we began last week. Uh, so the story is uh, where it says prelude, a story, and um, this comes from Sipure Maisios. This is, that's the main work of the 13 stories of Rabbi Nachman. And uh, even though we're not going to have time during our shiurim to go through the most important, uh, what's assumed to be the most important of the stories, of the 13 stories in Sipure Maisios, um, I, I feel like uh, it's worth it at least just to tell snippets of the story. And the story is, um, uh, is the story of the seven beggars. And it's a very long story. It's the longest of the Sipure Maisios. Uh, as we mentioned last week, it runs to something like 25 printed pages. Uh, but within that story, uh, in a remarkably modern fashion, Sarvin Nachman tells stories within stories. So I wanted to touch upon a, a story. And uh, I mentioned last week that when we read stories, we find them, uh, we find them corresponding, or it's easier to find these stories corresponding to the stories of our own life. Uh, you know, sometimes talking about the importance of the stories I said we were going to begin with them, we'll get to it in a second, um, but sometimes even our colloquialisms have a way of going ahead and, uh, and revealing the way that we think about things. And if we see sometimes somebody uh, a little bit interesting, um, strange maybe, or uh, we want to learn more about somebody. So one of the first things you'll hear when, when we want to talk about that person, hopefully it's not Lashon Hara, is to say, what's their story? What's their story? What is, uh, what's, what's that person's story? Uh, or, you know, somebody will ask you, what's your story? And uh, I always think that that's like a really nice way of, uh, you know, rather than asking somebody that you, have it, that you haven't seen for a while, you know, the classic, uh, the classic way you go, well, what are you up to right now? Um, which is like, you know, a nice way of saying, I, I, haven't, I, haven't, I have no idea what you've been doing. So, um, so a nice way to say it, or a nicer way to say it, is to say, what's your story now? And, uh, and it's, a, it's an invitation, I think. It's a way to go ahead and to solicit from somebody uh, to go ahead and to tell you about themselves. And uh, in, a, in a certain way, in a certain way, we are now out of source sheets. So if anybody wants to, uh, well, I need one. There's <laughs> another one underneath. Um, oh, we have two over here. Oh, okay. Check that out. You got a twofer. Awesome. So it's just enough. Hey, Martin. Um, um, so, so, and people, I think that we reveal about ourselves that we love to tell stories and that we're actually, all of us are natural storytellers. And uh, once upon a time, the way that cultures passed on their traditions, not just in Judaism, was that they told stories. Uh, many of us, uh, I have now my, the seventh graders in my school are learning about, about Greek myths in language arts. And, uh, and it's a way of saying that here's another culture, that the way that they wanted to make sense of their world, or the way that they wanted to pass on their worldview is not giving people uh, taught in pat aphorisms or, or even, um, or even uh, specific traditions in terms of like, this is what we do now or this is how we think about this, but that they told stories, and the stories were able to convey that message in every culture. Uh, remember in school learning about uh, uh, one of my favorite books growing up, That's Why Mosquitoes Buzz in People's Ears. Anybody know that story? It was a Cattle Cod Award winner. And I remember that story even now, uh, years and years later, uh, which was, uh, which was a, uh, an African myth uh, 
uh, and an origins myth, and every culture does this. We tell stories. So a personal story was that this week uh, I was away from Shul, um, and I... Um, it was the first time I'd taken off, I think, since the summer. Um, and, um, and we went away to West Hempstead because my brother Jake made a, uh, a bris mila uh, for his son. Uh, for, uh, for his son's name is now Naftali Avram Simcha Ben Yehuda Peretz, or Nate Leo, uh, named after uh, both my Zaidi and... Uh, that's a mouthful, yeah, three names. Um, uh, and um, named after my Zaidi, uh, Rav Naftali Horowitz, Zichron Levracha, and also named after, um, named after, hi, uh, also named after my, uh, my sister-in-law's grandfather as well. And, uh, and it's an incredible moment. It's an incredible moment to be at a, at a bris meal, especially on Shabbos, especially on Parshas uh, Lech Lecha, when we hear about Father Abraham and, and his mila and his, enter, his entering into the, into the covenant and, um, and, uh, and it's a really auspicious moment. We, we're told, tradition tells us, that when parents go ahead and give a name to a child, that it's an aspect of uh, Ruach HaKodesh, an aspect of divine inspiration that comes to the parents as they give that name. And that name is the essence. Our name is our essence. Uh, something very uh, beautiful. So they asked, uh, 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 my, my brother asked if I would uh, share a word of Torah at the Shalom Zachar. So... It's a story within a story. Very Rabbi Nachman-esque, if I can arrogate to do such a thing. So the story was, I, I spoke for a second, I said, and I believe it's printed in one of, uh, one of the three books. So how's that for a citation? One of the three books that Rav uh, Herschel Schachter uh, printed of the, of the specific minhagim and, uh, and halachos and Torah that he learned from his Rebbe, Rav Soloveitchik. And in one of them, either Nefesh Arav, Pnini Arav, or Divrei Arav, in one of them, uh, he tells the following story that at the, at the Shalom Sachar of, uh, of a friend of mine, uh, uh, of, um, of Rabbi Tovia Brander, who's now the rabbi, I believe, the young Israel in New Haven, who's the son of Rabbi Kenny Brander, who... I believe also worked in this show once upon a mm-hmm. time as an assistant rabbi. I follow in good footsteps. And, um, <laughs> and when they were at the Shalom Zachar, um, when they are at the Shalom Zachar, so somebody asked the Rav, uh, and they said, well, what's the deal with Arbis? Why do we have Arbis? Why do we serve Arbis chickpeas at the Shalom Zachar? So the Rav apparently told Rav Shechter that it's very similar to what we eat at a Su'udas Havra. Su'udas Havra lo'aleinu is the meal that is eaten when, we, uh, when, when, when people come back from the Beis Alman, from the cemetery. So, so the meal that the community gives them, the Sudas Havra, so one of the minhagim is to go ahead and to eat a round item. If you, if you know, sometimes Lo uh, Aleinu, again, in the Art Scroll book on Hilchas Avelos that, that uh, sometimes the shul gives out together with uh, Rabbi Maurice Lamb's book. So on the cover of it is a picture of an egg. Is a picture of an egg, and the egg symbolizes what we uh, what we might sing now: the circle of life, the fact that life is indeed a circle. And this is an idea that we're going to hopefully, if I could help it, uh, we'll come back to at the end with the final story that we'll that we'll tell today. Mir Hashem at the end of the shiur, the circle of life, this return back to the source, um, and and in the sense, in the words of Rav Tikachinsky, wrote in his Gesher Chaim that between between uh, between the between the time we were born. And the time that we leave this world, hopefully, so that's a circle. And this was just a, this was a moment. Our lives was a moment in between those vast, infinite uh, chasms that we can't even that we can't even understand. And this is uh, our moment in between those. And uh, and he said that the connection to um, 
to a Shalom Zachar is that when a soul comes down into the world, the soul protests. The soul does not want to be brought down into this world filled with corruption, filled with lies and jokes, and filled with all kinds of leitzanas, mockery of everything that's important and everything that's significant, cruelty from people to one another. So into this broken world, the Neshama is forced, Al-Korcho, against its will, to come down into the world and to live a life. And, uh, and I said, uh, I said in... Um, Appointed, you know, it's hard to say divrei Torah in the first place, but to say an unsolicited divrei Torah, interrupting everybody having fun in the shalom, nobody wants to hear me uh, ever. But uh, <laughs> but I did say one of the things that I used to maybe grab people, as I said, I looked around the room of men and women that were there for the shalom zachar. I said, all of us were that neshama, right? We were all babies once. We were all. Uh, we were all loved by parents, hopefully, uh, who who chose to bring us into this world. And when we came into this world. When we came into this world, so our neshama also protested. Our neshama also said, I don't want to go. And you might be familiar with the beautiful journey song also. Right? The neshama says, uh, says to the malach, says, I don't want to come down into this world. And, uh, and uh, you know, against our will, we're here. And uh, we, we talk about this in the liturgy on Yom Kippur. And uh, now that we're here, what do we do? Um, beautiful line in the Hakdamas HaZohar, V'hashta Dant Hacha, and now that we're here. So we say, Leitlan Isvasa, right? We have nothing to heal us. We have Divrei Torah, we have Torah Mitzvahs, and the Shama has shown what it can accomplish in this world, the Torah and the Mitzvahs and the Chassadim and the friendships and, and, and everything that we accomplish in this world. So the arbis that we have is like the egg at the Suuda Savra. It's like this um it's like this sense of tanhuman, a little bit of nicham avelim, if you were, uh, comforting, uh, comforting some, something that's mourning, and that's the soul of this baby that came in. And thinking about that baby, the next, uh, the next day, I thought of the following story, which we're going to begin with. This story is a story told on day one of the Masa of the seven beggars, and this is a story that comes from the blind beggar. The blind beggar is the first beggar that this orphan uh, Couple. They eventually become a couple. In the story, uh, two lost children, two lost orphans, um, and uh, and basically they're set up by these seven uh, beggars that they meet. And each beggar is lacking something. Each beggar is somebody that you would say that is is somehow uh, not fully in this world uh, for for some sort of a disability, for some sort of profound thing that's lacking. The first beggar that they meet, and uh, who. Or revealed that actually that lack is is not a lack at all. It's only mitzidenu. It's only from our perspective. Those of us that are lucky enough to be whole can look at somebody and say that this is a lack. So the first beggar they meet is the blind beggar. And the blind beggar starts off and he tells him, you think I'm blind, but I'm actually not blind at all because blindness is really only a physical attribute. And in the spiritual sense, I know that this world is keherif ayin. I know that this world passes us by and I don't pay attention to what's going on in this world. And he reveals himself as do all the beggars to be a, 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 a man of profound depth and wisdom. And the story goes like this. We're going to start in the second paragraph. Um, and, and the beggar is quite old when he's telling them the story, but he also says, in many ways, I'm very young. And he tells a story about when he was young. He says, and, and hopefully the story will help set the tone for our interpretation of Rabbi Nachman's stories. And I want to just preface Another preface is that but when I say the interpretations, by no means does that mean that I'm saying the right interpretation. I think that that's part of the uniqueness and what makes the story so special is that it's really not, it, it's really not, one is not able to say that there is a right, quote unquote, ter- interpretation of stories. The stories are, are true in the way that we receive them, are true in the way that we allow them to speak to our story. When we say, what's our story? So the blind beggar says, once upon a time, 
There were people that were traveling on ships on the ocean. And a great wind came and, 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 uh, and capsized the ships. And the people were saved and they came uh, once they got ashore to a great tower. And they entered into the tower. And they found in this tower treasure stores of all the food and drink and dress and anything that they needed. And in this tower, it was all good and all of the pleasures of, this, uh, of the world. They said, So uh, ostensibly they had eaten, they had partaken of the treasures of this storehouse, of this tower. And they said, as they were sitting around, everybody should tell a story. Everybody should say something, an oldest story. What is, and maybe if you're, if you're listening now, what's the earliest memory that you have, right? What's the earliest memory that you could access? And usually it won't be the first thing that you think, but the oldest true memory that you could access. And that takes a lot of thought, quiet, maybe not right now, but that's a, that's a profound uh, thing. What is the earliest thing that I remember that's, that I can say is in actuality my memory? My earliest memory. So they said, everybody say their earliest memories. The first thing that they could remember when their memory began. There were young and old there. And they honored the oldest of the group to, t- to tell his story first. So he said, what, what should I tell you? I remember when they cut the apple from the branch. And nobody knew at all. What was he talking about? But there were wise people there who said, Truth, this is a very, for sure, this is a very, very old story. And they moved along, and the next person speaks. And you could already uh, start to see churning the, the engines and the mechanisms of symbolism, the mechanisms, right? What, you might already think uh, we have already associations of cutting an apple from a tree, maybe from a few parshios ago. So already the associations start to come and percolate to the surface. But I think we best leave them, at least for now, unspoken and unsaid. The second one says... He wasn't as old as the first person. That's an old story? Right, questioning. I also remember when they cut the apple from the tree. Uh, uh, I'm thinking there's, um, we grew up listening to a lot of Natalie Merchant. So one of the uh, one of the one of the beautiful songs that she has that I'm just thinking about now uh, is she sings "Remember How It All Began," the apple and the fall of man. I wonder if she read Sipure Maisios. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> anyway, so so it continues. He says, <laughs> "I also remember when they cut the apple from the tree." <laughs> I also remember the candle being lit. Now again, I don't want to give too much interpretation here, but you might be familiar, and this is why I was already thinking about this new baby, this new neshama that had come into the world. What's the ner dolek? What, might, what Talmudic imagery might we associate that with? Haner dolek? Yeah? Before somebody's born? The Gemara? 
Yeah, the Gemara Nida and Daphne Beis Ahmed Aleph tells us that every neshama, every soul in the world, so we sit in a malach, teaches us all the Torah with the Ner Dalek Al Rosho, in the womb of the mother, the soul is taught all the Torah. And then, of course, we get the the tap on the lip and we forget everything, but at least the Torah was once a part of us. It's our job to reclaim. It's our job to go ahead and to continuously seek out that, that which we already had. All learning, even this, I would assume, is, is in some sense Chazaretz, in some sense review, because of the Ner Dolik, the candle that was on top of the baby's, the, that Neshama's soul in the womb. So that's, that could certainly be a Talmudic reference. So they said, That is indeed an earlier story from the first, And it was wondrous to them that the second person who is younger than the first person, And remember, something even more ancient than the first one, something even earlier than the first one. They move now to the third person. The third said, who's even younger. I remember when this fruit had started to form, when the fruit had started to uh, germinate. When it began to take form. They said that indeed is a very ancient, a very old story. Next, the fourth person, who was even younger. He said, I remember when they took the seed to go to plant the fruit. The fifth, who was even younger, said, I remember the wise people that had brought the seed in the first place, that had created the seed in the first place, that had, had offered, perhaps, the seed in the first place. The next one, who was even younger, he said, even before all that, I remember the taste of the fruit, before, before the fruit even had an identity. I remember before it came into the fruit. The seventh said, said, forget the taste, I remember the scent, the smell, an even more elemental, an even more rarefied thing I remember before that was even created. And the Shemini said, I remember something even more rarefied, not the taste, not the smell, not when they were bringing the seed, not when they were planting the seed, not when the fruit was taking form, not when the candle was lit, not even when the apple was cut from the anaf, cut from the branch. I remember I remember the image of the pre, the image of what it might be before it was even before it even became this fruit. The ani and the Rabbi Nachman says, now, we're talking about the blind beggar now who's telling the story to the two orphans. Shemesapir calls that. He said, He said, I was the youngest. I was but a child at this time. I was present when they were telling these stories. And I was also there. And I said to them, I remember all of this. I remember all of this. And he said, I also remember nothing. In Yiddish, Ein ich gedenk gar nicht. I remember nothing. And that's a capital N, nothing. I remember the nothingness before all of this came into the world. 
Anu va'amru. And they said, Zosi masa yeshana ma'od yoter mikulam. You're telling the oldest story of all. Vahayachidosh gadol etzlam shatinok zolcha yoter mikulam. And it was a great wondrous thing for them that this baby remembered more than everybody. Now, I think that the, interpret- the interpretive gesture over here is a rather easy one because Rabbi Nachman throws us what we would call in, in, uh, in, in I guess, in like television, right, an Easter egg almost. He says, you know, the narrative where everybody's saying the same thing and it's building upon one another is broken by one thing, it's that ner, which is such a direct Talmudic reference. And we also find, wondering what's going on in the story, we find that as we get younger and younger, the memory gets deeper and deeper. And this is what I thought about as, uh, as Nate Leo is getting his bris this Shabbos. So we have this rachanim, we have this little baby, that this baby actually, uh, in a room full of people with a, with a beloved rabbi, Rabbi Kelemer Shlita, a beloved rabbi who... Uh, who, who's, uh, and, and the community people, young and old, standing there, and everybody bivadai with all their memories. And this Tinok has the oldest memory of all, who's, who's just been in this world for eight days, just been here for eight days. Maybe this Tinok, you know, you look at a, this, the babies, you know, when they, you know, in those first, those first weeks, you're like, what are they thinking? What's going through their mind? Maybe, they're, maybe they could feel maybe that loss, that tam, that taste of that Torah that they were taught, that taste or the sight or, or something of that world which they were taken from, that, that, we, that we comforted them. We said, Shalom, Zachar, welcome. Welcome to us. At least we could get together and learn Torah. At least we could go ahead and forge a covenant with HaKadosh Baruch Hu on the eighth day. But that baby is the one that remembers everything. What Rabbi Nachman does in this story within a story is I think articulates or somehow manages to articulate that most rarefied of ideas. What is the memory of a child? What is the earliest memory that you can articulate in a spiritual sense? The memory of things that, of things that aren't of this world. And Rabbi Nachman does so in such a poetic, beautiful manner. And, and, and even this story, you could sit and dwell on this for the rest of this year, but, but I'm not going to do that. And uh, I want to quote to you you know, the more that you read of Rabbi Nachman's stories, the more you push through. We talked about the Mar Lifnei Amatuk, the bitterness of confusion and the bitterness of lack of understanding when you first encounter these stories. So when you work through it, you find such metikus, you find such sweetness. Pinchas Sada, who is an Israeli scholar and author who printed a version and a commentary of Rabbi Nachman's stories, is quoted by Tzvi Mark, uh, who authored... Uh, who put together this book that we talked about last week, Kol Sipure Rabbi Nachman Abreslov. He writes the following thing, and I don't think that it's an exaggeration. He writes, he got after he finished his book, he said, I've, I've reached the conclusion, or I've, I've recognized, that I didn't think before I started this work of working through Rabbi Nachman's stories. It's not alone that Rabbi Nachman is perhaps the greatest uh, teller of stories in, in modern age of Jewish people. But one of the greatest creative minds, one of the greatest creators in all of world literature. I don't think that that's an exaggeration at all. This is this is certainly not meant to be hagiographic praise, but, the, but it's actually true. The more time you spend with the stories, and I'm certainly not going to do it justice, the more time you spend with the stories, the more you realize the profundity and the depth of reason and the depth of, of spiritual ideas that are articulated. And hopefully at the end of this year tonight, we'll be able to go ahead and, and, and if Hashem lets me, uh, to be able to articulate, uh, if I am able to hold people's attention, to articulate another story of Rabbi Nachman. We're out of uh, source sheets, if you want to share with somebody. Um, the, um, that he's able to articulate through a story something which is, something which is actually, I think, quite ineffable that, that we're going to hopefully learn at the end tonight.
Let's talk a little bit about what Rabbi Nachman was doing by telling stories. We have, uh, we have statements from Rabbi Nachman himself that try to articulate uh, what, the, what these stories are. And um, you know what? Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll kind of gloss over the first source. The first source comes from Likutim Aran. Rabbi Nachman quotes the Gemara, which says that there's 70 faces of the Torah. Rabbi Nachman may be presaging Levinas. Talked about the interaction between the tzaddik and us, between this righteous individual, this conduit to the higher world world, this conduit to God, a person that can help us through their Torah, through their teachings, connect to Kaddish Baruch, which is what we're trying to do, is why we're here. And, uh, and he says that, that sometimes in order to be able to receive that, so, you know, people will say, you know, in like, um, in homiletics and YU and the uh, SRs and the rabbinic classes, they always say, you know, can't just go up and, and, and just say Torah, maybe, in some, maybe some rabbis can, but it always helps to tell a story. It always helps if anybody is going to go ahead and speak, to tell a story, especially a personal one. That's a way to draw people in because people recognize themselves in the stories that you tell if you're a good storyteller. And a story is a way of going ahead and, and bringing people in, whether it's a personal story, whether it's one of the great stories of the Jewish people, or one of the great stories of the world. Stories have a way of bringing us in. Rabbi Nachman writes in the bolded section, When a tzaddik wants to show people his face, when a tzaddik wants to go ahead and, and reveal oneself, right? Moshe says to God, show me your face in the sense it's a byword for revelation how does the tzaddik reveal God and himself and the Torah and to awaken people from their sleep so you have to you have to engarb, you have to cover over this facet of the Torah that you're trying to give over. You clothe it in stories. Sipure Maisios. That the Sipure Maisios, and perhaps here's license to see the deep symbolism in Rabbi Nachman's stories, which is of course present. But when the tzaddik wants to go ahead and to show your face, you say something personal. You say a story. You bring people along on a narrative journey. And in doing so, you're able to awaken them from their slumber. We find similar things even with, uh, with Milsa Debidi Chusa, with ways that rabbis in the Talmud would open up their shiurim with jokes and we're going to see jokes in a couple of minutes right the importance of jokes are sometimes the the degradation of a society founded upon jokes uh, they can't take anything seriously but milsa de to open up a shiur with a with a joke i'm not such a funny guy so i can't do that i do stories instead right milsa de or to go ahead for example rabbi akiva saw his students were falling asleep uh, he saw shayanim uh, that they were falling asleep so he goes ahead and he says that the he he, he went ahead and he dropped like a quick aphorism or a, a quick uh, did you know something a fact something that went and drew, drew people and you know what Rabbi Kiva said he said that Sarah Imenu lived 127 years and Esther was able Queen Esther was able to rule over 127 Medinos and the connection between that it's, it's puzzling. It's something that goes ahead and wakes people up. And they say, Halavai wakes people up. They wake up. What does that mean? What exactly is behind that? The same thing happens with telling stories. Rabbi Yair Dreyfus, who uh, was the... Um this is his book. Rabbi Yair Dreyfus was the Chavrusa of Rav Shagar, who we've had an opportunity and schus to speak about often in, uh, in this shul and uh, to learn together. So Rabbi Yair Dreyfus is now the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshivat Siach, which was the yeshiva he and Rav Shagar founded. So Rabbi Yair Dreyfus, I was able to get a few years ago this book. Uh, there's a 
it, there's a beautiful cover. You could see there, these are supposed to be the two orphans from the story getting married. Oh, I'm, I'm revealing the ending. Spoiler alert. They get married at the end uh, in a pit, in a pit covered and surrounded by garbage. And you could see the, 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 the images, right? Almost like a wraith of the seven beggars that surround them at the end. So the story is called Chatunah Avudim, the marriage of the lost. And it's Kriyach HaDashah Shiva Kavtsanim. It's a new reading of the story of the seven beggars. And uh, they write in the Hakdama, in the introduction, that Rav Dreyfus taught this in a, in a shul, in Nachlaot, in Yerushalayim. And it took them a year to go ahead and to finish telling the story. A year for the story to go ahead and to extract as much meaning as possible. And he certainly does. Um, it's... A wonderful book. I'm happy to lend it to anybody uh, once I'm done preparing for the Shira. But, uh, but he writes the following in his Akdam and the author's preface. And I think that this is an important thing uh, to, to do before we reach our next story. Hachal Mishnat Taksav. So four years before Rabbi Nachman died, roughly uh, 1806. So, Rabbi Nachman began to tell even more stories and began to move. To a, to a mode in which he was telling stories primarily. And, and this is how we have the creation of the 13 classic stories that appear in the printed edition of Sipure Maisios. Now, of course, Rabbi Nachman told stories throughout his life, and Rabbi Nachman's own life was indeed a great epic story, as we've learned la- last year when we talked about the story of Rabbi Nachman's journey to Eretz Yisrael. This is subsequent to Rabbi Nachman's return from Eretz Yisrael that he starts to uh, increase and starts to uh, per, uh, perseverate in the telling of stories is a primary mode of giving Torah. And in the bolded section, Hama'avar Sipur, the transition to telling stories, Einorak Shinui Shel Signon Hava'ah. When Rabbi Nachman told stories, it wasn't just a change in the mode or in the way that he was telling over his Torah. But rather, it was a, a complete change in the way Rabbi Nachman communicated things. In the beginning, in Sfarim like Likutei Maran, Rabbi Nachman's, uh, you can't even say that these are standard works of Torah, they're remarkably creative. Likutei Maran is a monumental work of associative language and ideas and uh, a deep trip throughout all of, of Jewish knowledge and classical Jewish writing and even that, so that was taking from Ha'ayin Hamufshat, that was drawing from the abstract, that was drawing from an ineffable abstract and to bring down ideas which could still be categorized as Torus, could still be categorized as something that you would find uh, essentially in all the Sfarim in this base Medrash, but in the telling stories rather it was El Yinikam and Ayesh Rabbi Nachman was trying to do, was trying to draw Torah down and to, and to to find his inspiration in yesh, which is a byword for milieu that we find ourselves in, the world that we find ourselves in. That's Rabbi Nachman is drawing from from the real stuff of real life, from folk tales, and from stories, uh, mundane conversations of people, the hevel shabnei adam, right? The mundane and meaningless conversations ostensibly meaningless conversations that people have. This is where Rabbi Nachman is drawing from. And, uh, and, and in a similar vein, much earlier, Dr. Arthur Green writes in his Tormented Master, which is 
this book, which if you're looking for an, an entry, and it's, it's almost an academic book, but you could tell that there's something a little bit more going on uh, with Dr. Green's uh, writing of the biography of Rabbi Nachman over here. Give it a kiss also. So, in, in tormented, in tormented, you do that too much. I was like, I was like picking up, uh, I was cleaning the house before I got here, so I was like picking up, uh, kids were home today because of uh, Veterans Day. So, so, of course, the playroom was, uh, was a big mess. And I'm picking up like, uh, I'm picking up, and I try and teach uh, early thing, try and teach you, try and teach my kids, you know, like if a sitter or a safer falls on the floor, or if Noah goes up to my shelves and drags something off, everything is safer gets a kiss, safer gets a kiss before you, before you put it up. So, um, so, so I was cleaning up children's books, and of course, you know, I pick up like uh, uh, Brown Bear, Brown Bear, and I'm giving it a kiss. I'm like, what am I, do- what am I doing over here? <laughs> what am I doing over here? Who knows? So he says... He writes the following in, in his second excursus where he talks about Rabbi Nachman's tales. He writes, uh, maybe if, if somebody else want to read from this section, I give myself, uh, I'm getting nauseous hearing myself speak so much. <coughs> Anybody want to read from this, uh, from this quick section? Bivakasha. I'll do it. Yes, please. All right. Just loud and proud. To reach into those depths and give them expression in words and in fiction rather than in metaphysical abstractions at that, such a task seems to be beyond the range of human capability. Surely involves a stretch of the mind and a narrative language beyond what they ordinarily reach. And that is precisely what Rebbe Nachman sought. A way to achieve the impossible task of giving verbal expression to the impenetrable depths. So he tells, Sepure ma'asiyot mi shanim Excellent. Of the innermost hidden rungs of divinity fashions of prose narrative. Rebbe Nachman has discovered a way to express in language what we call myth. The narrative account of a transcendent and primal reality. The Rebbe Nachman stories seem to speak of a different dimension in time and space is because they come from a realm that precedes both the spatial and temporal orders as we know them. And this is precisely the point where the revelation is a mythic one at the meeting place between the truth of the soul and the truth of the cosmos. That's uh, to, this is that's. Thank you for reading. Thank you. Uh, that to me, that's quite a line. What Rabbi Nachman is doing is not only trying to tell us about our world around us, but he's also trying to tell us something about ourselves and uh, an even deeper level, something about himself, something about himself, right? We say that uh, the Luchos, the Decalogue, begins with the word Anochi. And Anochi, Anochi Hashem Elokech Hashem Tzisichem I'm the Lord your God who has taken you, who has redeemed you from Egypt. So, uh, so one of the beautiful Torahs on this is that Anochi, Aleph, Nun, Chaf, and Yud stands for its Nutrikon, its Roshe Tevot of Ananavshik Siva Yahavis. That God is in essence telling us, I am giving over myself in the written word as much as possible to express the ineffable. How do you express what it means to recall a memory before we were even alive? Well, we saw an attempt to do that in the first story that we said tonight. The ineffable starts to go ahead and to find words. And that can't be done uh, in, in, by, by telling, uh, or at least Rabbi Nachman had discovered that it was impossible for him to do so by telling traditional Torah. So in a sense, he tries to communicate this through going ahead and telling us stories, through telling us sipure ma'asiyot, and in doing so reveals multiple concentric layers of truth about our world, about ourselves, about Rabbi Nachman himself, and about us. In, in essence, the tzaddik and his telling of the stories mirrors our own stories, and our own stories mirror what the tzaddik is telling us. And for example, this moment when I watched the bris on Shabbos and I was able to go ahead and associate it uh, with this story, that's something that's accessible to all of us. In, um, 
Yeah, we have time for this. So, so not only was Rabbi Nachman's life chronicled, uh, but the, the, the life of Rabbi Nachman's Talmud, uh, his great Talmud, Rav Nassim of Nemrav, was chronicled as well. After the death of Rav Nassim of Nemrav, who is the author, who, not the author, but who compiled Sipurei Maasiot. So we have a work called Yemei Moranat. And, uh, and we're, I'll say source number two outside. Uh, but source number two is a description from Rabbi Nassim himself that tells us about the genesis of these stories. And he says that the way that it would work is Rabbi Nachman would be somewhere, whether he was going to Lvov, to Lemberg, for, for treatment for his tuberculosis uh, and, and of the stories that he saw there and encountering the modern world at the time, or whether it was the stories that he got from his trips and his, his travels in Eretz Yisrael, or whether he had heard a conversation between people. So what he would do is that he would weave these encounters, he would weave these experiences into his stories. And he talks about the, the, the length and the time with which Rabbi Nachman told the story of the seven beggars. Apparently it took several weeks when it was first told and Rabbi Nachman, it was serialized almost, that Rabbi Nachman would tell it and then he would be quiet and then he would say, where were we? And they would, they would catch up the last place that they were in the stories. But what it does give, if you want to read source number two on your own, it does give the sense that these stories were very real happenings. In the time of Rabbi Nachman's Hasidim, his Hasidim sensed that when Rabbi Nachman was telling the stories, as unorthodox as it was, as different as it was from what preceded before, people recognized that something monumental was going on over here. That Rabbi Nachman was expressing himself in an altogether new and, and, and heretofore unseen manner. And that was, the, that was how monumental the stories were. Uh, Rabbi Nachman's journey, Rabbi Nachman's journey from, uh, from words to stories, from words of Torah in a traditional sense to stories, is also mirrored in another sense by a later tzaddik who we've had occasion to speak about in the show of Rav, uh, Rav Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Cook, the first chief rabbi of the land of Israel, and uh, somebody uh, who uh, was printed in printed the name of one of his students, printed in his name, Rav Moshe Tzvineria prints and says that Rav Cook was wont to say, or said once, that his soul was a uh, Gilgul, that his soul was a reincarnation of the soul of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, that they possessed the same root soul. Uh, so Rav Kook writes, and I have to read it because it's just so beautiful. Rav Kook writes, and talk about something, Rav Kook was somebody that also at times transitioned from telling Torahs like Rabbi Nachman, Rav Kook's Torah, the ordinary Torah of Rav Kook is absolutely extraordinary and, and, and defies categorization. But Rav Kook, we see at times Rav Kook transitions from Milim to Shirim. That Rav Kook transfers, this is not my insight, this is an insight of Rav Dreyfus, and it's a beautiful one at that. Rabbi Nachman found that sometimes he was constricted in the form of teaching Torah in a traditional sense and moved from words to stories. Rav Kook himself also said, uh, even in one of his songs, that he desired these wide open expanses with which to fully express himself, that words of Torah, even Rav Kook's Torah, couldn't fully express. Rav Kook writes in his Oros, ha- Oros HaKodesh, a Kriyali Histaklut I will just read the first part of it. Rav Kook says, I'm calling out to you to look beyond, to look above, to look to transcend. What is a transcendent way of looking at the world and, 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 and interpreting it as Torah? What does that look like? In Tirtze Ben Adam, if you want to, Take a look at all that's around you. When you go home tonight, stop and look at the buildings. Stop and look at the people. Well, don't gaze too much. It's still New York, right? But hey, you don't want, right? you don't want people. Well, I guess you'll just be another sight in New York, right? Stop and stare at people. Take a look at everything that's happening around you. Go out to nature. Go out to, go out to a place. Look up at the sky. 
And look at all of creation. And take a look at the heavenly essence that infuses everything. Now, you know, I, I don't know if it was fortuitous or not. I seem to have my most uh, profound interfaith conversation in the back of taxi cabs. You know, uh, some, uh, I don't invite the conversation, but, you know, the taxi driver will say, how are you? So I say, usually I say, thank God. And uh, maybe it's a commentary on, uh, on the times that we live in, but they'll like turn around and be like, Really? Like, they're so surprised to hear somebody invoke God in the day-to-day conversation. And uh, usually they'll say, thank God. And, and you'll get somebody who'll say, that's the only one. Uh, I've had multiple experiences where, where I'll go and say, alhamdulillah, right? To, uh, to, depending on the, on the country, you could see the name, alhamdulillah. And it creates a maga, it creates a, an interpersonal connection, a little uh, interfaith moment in the back of a New York cab where two people, and, and, and so tonight it was no different. And, uh, and he said, yeah, that's the only thing I said. So, so he was asking me, he said, are you a religious man? I said, I try. I, I try. He said, um, he said, I try also. That's what the taxi driver said. He said, I try also. He said, but it's hard. He said, work hard to make a living. I said, I, said, I know. I, I, I know what it is to, to I, I think I know what it is to work hard as well. Um, uh, maybe I don't work as hard as this man who I'm sure has long hours to support a family or to, or to, to create a better life for himself. Could make up a story. You could go ahead and create a narrative. Um, and then he said something profound. He said, "It's difficult." You look around at all these people. He said, "There's a lot of suffering, right?" The, it, I promise it could it could have been something that comes straight from me because I'm I'm pretty downer about all these things. But but he um, but he said, "You look around and and I said, but also this is on 68th Street now." And I said, "But then you look at these people and people hustling from the one going back and forth." And I said, "Soul, soul, 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 soul." Rav Cook is asking us to look at the world if you want. Rav Cook says, "In Tirzit Ben Adam, look at the world like that. Soul, 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 person, human being, Tzelam Elokim, an aspect of God that's in everybody." And you find that the world is actually surround you as an Eden Achayim. It's complicated. It's confusing. But we're all these souls walking around this world trying to make sense of it. Achin mitpash. You'll find this light, you'll find this understanding start to go ahead and to creep its way into every corner, every nook and cranny of existence. Whether it's spiritual matters, whether it's physical matters, that you see with your, with your eyes of flesh, think deeply about the wonder of creation. And in the divine essence that animates everything around us. Not as some sort of darkened or, or, uh, or cliched, you know, spiritual orientation. That people might tell you to put in front of your eyes. Know the reality in which you live. Know yourself. Know your world. Understand the thoughts that, that, that in here, when you stop to listen to yourself, of all thinkers. What I think Rav Kook is, is articulating here is maybe what Rabbi Nachman is doing with the stories. Is that Rabbi Nachman is saying, we could look at Torah we could go ahead and we could find ourselves blown away by a particular paragraph in Sichas Ran. But indeed, a way that we could go ahead and take it with us outside the base medrash is to go ahead and to see everything as Sipuri Maisios. And my friends and I even have like, you know, if something crazy happens or if there's some long-winded story and you pay attention to these stories, so you'll say, when you're recounting, you'll say Sipuri Maisios. Right? It was, right, it was Sipuri Maisios. It was, it was an amazing story. 
Right, it's an amazing, listen to this. How did I get here tonight? Well, I told Sipurim Isios in the back of a taxi cab. Sipurim Isios. So with that, I want to finish. <coughs> I want to finish with one story. And we still have time. Um, I would say every time I reread one of the stories, I read them a long time ago. Every time I reread them, so I'll write in my notes, I'll say this, this is the most profound story. But this, I think, is one of the most profound stories. I don't want to go ahead and, and ruin it. Uh, I think there are more profound stories to come. We still have a few more Shurim in Yerts Hashem. But, uh, but this, is, this, is, this is a wow. This is a wow. And Ezra Sashem, Yularatz and Rafi, maybe I'll be able to express what I saw in this story. And, and, and hopefully everybody's time here wouldn't be wasted that they go home with a deep, ineffable understanding of something profound, a, a deep, deep Torah. So here's the story. And I've been alluding to it throughout the shir tonight. I've been sort of uh, touching upon certain notions. I'm going to read it, the Hebrews in front of you. I'll translate everything as well. A story of a king that had a wise advisor. The king said to his advisor, and this is one of the stories in the 13 in Sipurim Maisios, called Story of the Humble King. So the king said to his wise advisor, There is another king who signs his name. He's a great and wondrous, wondrous king, very heroic. He signs his name as a heroic, great king, but also a man of truth and very humble. Vihine Gibor. I'm not going to do any... Last time I'll interrupt myself. I'm not going to do any interpretation now. I want the story to sink in, and then we'll, we'll try and ask a few questions. I'll leave you with questions maybe at the end. Start again. Story of a king that had a wise advisor. The king said to the wise advisor, There is another king that signs his name, signs his name that he's heroic and mighty, and he's a man of truth and humble. Vihine Gibor. And he's this, this strong king. I know that he's very strong and heroic. Around his country is surrounded by, by treacherous seas. So around him is armed guards and armed naval fleet with all kinds of cannons. And they don't let anybody come close to the king or the country. And within, past the sea, so there's a swamp. When you get closer to shore, there's a very dangerous, boggy swamp, and it's uh, people people drown there. And then there's only a small path. Only one person can walk down that path. And there's cannons there too. And when people come to, uh, to people who are unwelcome, so, so they unleash fire. The, they open fire, I think we say. And it's impossible to get close to that country. So I know that he's quite heroic. I know that he's... Uh, quite strong, at least in a military sense. But I don't understand, says the king to his wise advisor, I don't understand why he signs his name, Ish Emes V'Anav. That, that I don't know why. 
Vani rotsa shetavie lai ha portrait. I want you, you guys know what a portrait is, right? I want you to bring me his portrait. Shall also Amelech, the portrait of that king. Because this king, the one who's sending his wise advisor, has the portraits of every king. But this king, nobody has the portrait of the king in this fortified country. Because he's hidden from people. He sits behind the curtain. And not even that, but he's distant and inaccessible to the people of his own country. So the Chacham travels to this country. He said in his mind, Before I approach the king, I have to know what this country is all about. So how do you know what a country is all about? You know a country, you know their essence by the jokes that they tell. Shakorin kataves. They're kataves. When you want to know something, you have to know the jokes that they make about that thing. Now, even, I said no interpretation. Because indeed, there are different ways of humor, of making a joke. There's one type where a person truly wants to hurt their friend. Right? And when your friend goes and says, hey, what the hey? You say, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Right? It's just a joke. Right? You could do the worst things. And then you could say, it's just a joke. I was just kidding. Why can't you take a joke? Kamosha Kosov, as it writes, in Mishle Kimis Lahaleya. I'm making sport. I'm making sport of you. I'm just joking. And then there's one person that truly wants to tell a joke. And yet they still hurt their friend by their jokes. And there's many different types of humor. And inside all the countries, there is one country that contains all other countries. And in that country that contains all other countries, there's a city that contains all other cities of that country. That contains all other countries. And in that city, and in that city there's one house. That contains all the houses of the city. Of the city that contains all cities in the country that contains all countries. Vishamish Adam, and within that house, there's a man, Shakalo Mikol Habayit, that he has all of the house is within him. So this person is the center, right? What uh, Dr. Green might say, the axis mundi, right? The thing that contains everything else that axis upon all which all else goes ahead and is mistovev and, 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 and moves around. And that man is the one who makes all the humor, all the laughter, and all the, all the jokes of that country. So we're going to come back to what exactly this very cryptic, exceedingly cryptic paragraph is. But have patience, have patience. Stay with us. I see I'm running out of time. So the wise man took a lot of cash and went there. And he found in that country that there was a 